0: You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Scoletti, and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the American Bar Association's annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois. We're here to cover this event and its highlights for you, our listeners. And joining me now, I have three esteemed guests. First up, I have Professor Tracy Mears, and next to her, I have Professor Craig Futterman. And then, of course, I have Director Sean Smoot. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you. Thank Good morning. you for having us. All right. Thank you so much. And so before we get started, I wanted to go around the table and have everybody give us a little bit more detail on yourselves for the benefit of our audience. And so since we started with Professor Muirs here, we're going to start with uh, Director Sean Smoot. Where do, you,
1: where do you work? What do you do? I'm the Director and Chief Counsel for the Police Benevolent Protective Association of Illinois and the Treasurer of the National Association of Police Organizations. Uh, for the last 20 years, I've uh, my professional life, I've represented police officers in various forms. Uh, including, of course, legal representation, but also legislative advocacy and administrative procedures. Um, Most recently, I represented law enforcement on the president's task force for the 21st century policing. Professor Futterman.
2: Hi, I'm a clinical law professor at University of Chicago Law School, and there I direct a civil rights clinic that focuses on issues of police accountability and criminal justice reform. Professor Beers.
3: I'm a law professor at Yale University. Um, I teach criminal law, criminal procedure, um, issues of policing. My research focuses on building public trust between police. And the public, and outside of my work at the academy, along with Sean, I have just recently served on the president's task force for 21st century policing. Excellent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So now, the reason I brought you all by is because you were presenting uh, together uh, perspectives on race, communities, and policing in 21st century America here at ABA annual meeting. And so, uh, I'm looking for a volunteer. Can we get a 50,000 foot kind of viewpoint as to what that was all? about
3: I think I'll start and one of the things that we tried to do was summarize the basis of um, the report on which Sean and I participated that we gave to the president um, on recommendations for policing in the 21st century and that report that was finalized on May 28th of this year uses as its foundation its first pillar these ideas of uh, police legitimacy and, and public trust. And those ideas are based on about two, three decades of research pioneered by my colleague, Tom Tyler, um, also at, at Yale Law School, showing that the public cares a great deal about how they're treated, and this should be obvious, but how they're treated in terms of assessing the appropriate of police behavior, whether it's rightful, even whether it's legal. And the, the report that we offered uh, to the president gave a number of recommendations about how to do that. And we spoke about that this morning. Professor Futterman, what was
2: your leg of the presentation about? Sure. So um, drawing first on Tracy and her colleagues' incredible work on procedural justice, We tried to bring into focus some of the work that my students and I have been doing for the last few years, working with black high school students um, in Chicago high schools. And what we've been doing, we've been talking and really listening to kids about their everyday experiences with police, what those encounters look like, what they feel like, and how they impact kids and how they impact their behavior. So, uh, if if there was a gloss that um, that I that I added to Tracy's comments, um, as Tracy described eloquently, all that it means to. In terms of policing, in terms of our public safety, and in terms of public trust, um, when police are perceived as legitimate, and strategies for um, improving and enhancing legitimacy, which improve our safety, my glass was really adding a component and, and adding a component that we particularly learned from kids—more of a friendly addendum than a core critique—is that a core part of police legitimacy in the community, particularly among the kids who we talk with, um, include accountability, so that when And accountability and transparency, some honesty, so that when kids see that officers cross the line um, and treat them disrespectfully or abusively, that um, the department doesn't stand behind that kind of behavior. But the department instead stands behind legitimate policing, stands behind rightful policing, stands behind treating people with dignity and treating people with respect. All
0: right, Director Sean Smoot, what was your part of the presentation?
1: Well, I think one of the important points that that I touched on uh, during the presentation was really the internal procedural justice that's really an essential part of building trust between uh, the police and communities that they represent or or that they serve and protect. Uh, You know, what has been, uh, what we discovered doing the work on the President's Task Force was you know the, the number one stress source identified by police officers wasn't the dangers that they face on the street, wasn't the, the stress that they feel at home uh, as a result of the work that they do, but was actually uh, the number one stress source for them was uh, the treatment that they received by uh, their employers at work, their work environment. And so that ties in directly, I think, really with both what Professor Futterman and uh, Professor Mears Talked about in terms of uh, the overall idea of procedural justice and legitimacy, and um, it it was very interesting to hear um, Superintendent McCarthy, who also was on the panel with us, you know, acknowledge that it's you know unrealistic to expect police officers to go out and treat citizens or their customers, in essence, in in a way that's respectful. And in a procedurally just way, if they don't feel that they're treated the same way by their employer, by the police department. And so I I would say that was probably one of the key points that that I emphasized, in addition to talking about some other officer safety and wellness issues.
0: Okay, so in just a brief review, I'm hearing highlights of police legitimacy. I'm hearing highlights of uh, police trust. Uh, working with um, uh, African-American high school students and talking about police encounters and then talking about the police experience as well. And so obviously this has been quite a year of, uh, I guess, civil unrest uh, in terms of encounters with uh, the police departments around the country. And so I guess I want to offer up um, this next question. And so I, I guess we had a show recently on Legal Talk Network, and we talked about, uh, it, was called, it was called Police Brutality, and we we're reviewing different circumstances. And this is, it really shouldn't be a two-sided conflict. It really ought to be all of us working together. But I was talking with uh, Delroy Burton from uh, DC Police Union, and uh, we had an, uh, it, was an um, it was an off-the-air discussion, but I'm, I'm comfortable that he would uh, want me to talk about this. And we were talking about a Facebook video where a dog was shot and right on camera and you hear the booing and, and everybody upset at these two police officers and there's a camera one shot you know one frame you know kind of one angle looking at this and what happened was was that someone was being arrested and they were asked to you know uh, corral their dog the dog jumps out of the car starts attacking the police officers and the police officers um, had to shoot the dog kill it right there on the spot and it was horrible horrible to watch but everybody that was there was booing And then when it comes out later, it was like, well, this encounter on camera didn't cover the whole thing. There wasn't the conversations leading up to that. And so you start talking about police trust. So when do these people boo? When did they show up on the scene? You know, and this dog, dogs being good dogs, you know, protect their owner doesn't, dog doesn't know what's going on and unfortunately is brought into this. And so the reason I bring that up is because I think that comes down to perception. You know, we, we hire police officers to protect us, and we trust them, and we give them a you know amazing amount of authority. So I guess maybe a comment on that, this trust that we give to police officers and uh, the duties and responsibilities we have as citizens to uh, behave in a certain way. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes we do come into conflict with the law. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that, this perception idea is it different uh, around the country? I know It's kind of a tough question to answer, but you guys had a pretty long presentation, and so I just kind of wanted to, in, in terms of the video question I asked.
3: Right. So there are a lot of different facets to that question. Um, I'm not going to actually speak to the video. I'm gonna offer some comments that I think will frame the reactions that I'm pretty sure that Professor Fetterman and Director Smoot can and will offer, because I've spent a lot of time around them, and (laughs) I know about how they think about things. But let me offer this as a a framing mechanism. You're talking about perceptions. You're talking about expectations. Um, One way of understanding what it is we expect police to do is to keep us safe by reducing crime. And by all accounts, over the last few decades, crime has gone down a great deal, violent crime especially, across the country. And it's also fair to say at this point that police play some role. I'm not saying that they're solely responsible for it. Um, you know, the explanations for crime decline include you know changes in the economy and also um, removal of lead from the environment. Also seems to have an impact. So there are lots of different factors, but it does seem to be clear that police play a role. Right. Now, what's interesting, though, is if you look at um, public perception of the police doing their job, the level of trust in police or the level of confidence that the public has in the police or the level of um, how highly they rate police over this same period of time that crime has gone down substantially, um, most polls show that the public's ratings of police has remained sort of flat, during this time period, and you know, to the extent that we think that what the public really cares about is uh, uh, police being effective crime fighters, that should cause us to be a little um, curious. That uh, that should be odd, right? Um, we, you would expect that the public's rating of police should move in sync with um, the crime decline, and it's not. And so um, that leads directly into the research that I spoke about today, because decades of work on uh, procedural justice show that while the public does care about police effectiveness, what the public cares much more about is how the police treat them, whether the police treat them um, fairly, and fairness is defined in a very particular way. Whether police treat the public with dignity and respect, whether... Police make decisions that the public can identify as fair and not a function of animus or bias, this transparency point whether people, whether the public has a chance to participate in making um, policy or engaging in a particular interaction with a police officer to tell their side of the story, and whether the public can expect to be treated benevolently in the future by police. We call that motive-based trust. This is what the public cares about. These are the perceptions that matter, and my guess is when you look at incidents like that. Um, you know, how the public is registering their feelings about it has much more to do with these kinds of things, the ones that I just mentioned, as opposed to, you know, police effectiveness and, and the like.
0: That kind of comes into, a, I guess, a discussion about perceptions, you know, and I think uh, I, this is a recommendation. Anybody has an opportunity to do a ride along. I think it's a, you know, a big wonderful experience to have and I think I think as a public you know we put a lot of trust in police officers but we don't understand what they have to go through to you know perform their job and so we want to be safe but in order to be safe you have to have somebody that's very understanding somebody that investigates but it sometimes has to be a soldier to protect people they have to at a at a moment's notice they have to react to a deadly situation and I like I like what we're we're talking about you know working with um, high school students That's probably a perception that the police don't have. What is it like to be an African-American high school student? And so I think this comes down to perceptions. But I want to direct some discussion over to uh, Director Sean Smoot. I mean, I think it would be good for our country uh, to hear, you know, police perspective on this. I mean, when they see, you know, through media accounts, you know, titled police brutality and they see, you know, indictments, you know, in, in cities of, of officers in the line of duty. How does that affect the psyche? I mean, do they feel trusted? Are they losing
1: um, touch with the people that they're protecting? I mean, what, what, what's their perspective? Well, I think that they feel as though they're under attack right now. Uh, I think that's generally the sense across the country. To Tracy's uh, statement about, you know, the, the image of police being rather flat Uh, despite the fact that there's been these tremendous reductions in crime, particularly violent crime, that's true. But their image was pretty high to begin with. So it hasn't, you know, if 80 percent of the people think uh, have a positive uh, image of, of police, which is about what what the polls show, and that. Image stays flat at eighty percent. By a lot of standards, that would be considered to be very successful. Certainly, if you were running for president, minorities don't rate them as highly. You you would be uh, thinking that. But having said that, I think that um, certainly the events of uh, the culmination of events over the last probably eighteen months have done some damage to that image. I I don't think there's any question about that. You can't repeatedly see every three to seven days a new story, which is then, you know, looped for 24 hour news cycle uh, about uh, police officers uh, who take inappropriate action, and and that perception, I think, is what you're talking about. You know, the fact of the matter is, there's 18, there's over 18,000 police agencies in the United States. There's nearly a million police officers patrolling our streets every day, and the vast majority of them do the, do their job in a very honorable uh, way, and. You know, there are bad uh, actors in every profession, even the legal profession, believe it or not. And, you know, I think everybody has to recognize that. I know that there's a sense, particularly in the African-American community, and they bring a history and a perception to the table that is unique. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to acknowledge um, the history that's there in the United States, uh, the history of, of the role of law enforcement, uh, with regard to interacting with uh, people of color uh, over the the history of our country, which is we're pretty young still, but it's not it's not a great history. And uh, I think until we acknowledge that, um, it's very difficult for us to get past that issue, and it's very difficult for uh, members of that community to get past the issue.
2: If I can make just a couple absolutely, of comments. Absolutely, absolutely. It's so part of also our youth police project, our youth police project as we conceptualize it, it's, it's intentionally a youth police project, not a youth versus police project. <laughs> And so um, the kinds of conversations that I talked about in this panel with kids, I've had a number of similar types of conversations with police officers around the nation um, and getting police perspectives and officer perspectives. And certainly as Director Smoot just said, and particularly in the last 18 months, um, officers are feeling pretty defensive. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. If you're being criticized each and every day on cable news, talk radio, around the nation, you're going to feel defensive. Smart thing, by the way. (laughs) But the other thing that I've seen and encountered in these conversations also with officers is that, um, and this is also supported by other research that we've done and, and, and pretty much police streets around the nation would all agree with this, that it's a small percent. I mean, the vast majority of officers aren't out there abusing people and aren't out there abusing their powers. And so the vast majority of officers also I speak with are sometimes even more frustrated than the kids with whom I work Mm -hmm. when it comes to abuse that's committed by the small percentage of those bad apples out there. And they're equally frustrated and often feel disempowered, like, I can't report um, if I report that's gonna be my career, that's going to be, that could be my life, that could, that's my livelihood. And so one of the things that's been both, both I'd say, depressing and hopeful in my conversations with kids and youth, and I've heard two very similar things. So one, when I talk about these everyday encounters with kids, among the things that they also tell me, you know, when I say, well, can you imagine it being different and it looking different? And the sad part and the depressing part is, like, kids will say, you know, Professor Futterman or Mr. Futterman, you know, maybe in your neighborhood, but that's fantasy land here. And similarly, when I talk with groups of officers and we have these Candid off-the-record conversations, and I talk about relations and relations with black kids and in black neighborhoods and in, in, in urban areas, and officers tell me some of the same things that they also, and for different reasons, say, you know, this isn't this isn't a new thing. It just, we just didn't hit crisis now. This has been there a long time. There's a right. long history. That also have a real difficulty imagining something different that, you know, relations are somehow going to magically get better. The positive side, and this is true both with respect to kids and with respect to the officers who I talk with, and this is the thing that really gives me hope, is that both constituencies, both police and not youth versus police and, and officers, want it to be different. Mm -hmm. And that really gives me hope. And we've begun to have these conversations about ways. And I think Tracy's research is at the forefront of this ways in which we can imagine these relations being different, being positive, being more constructive, um, because, hey, we need good police. And we also need to be in a position where we can all trust police. Across across communities, as as you've said, we imbue police officers, and we need to um, endow them with extraordinary powers—the powers to arrest, to take our freedom, to use force, to shoot, to kill—and they need to have each and every one of those powers to keep us safe. And and that's my point. My last gloss is um, about the accountability issue. Is that that accountability issue is equally important both for trust with respect to kids and respect to community, but it's also important with respect to the Vast majority of good officers who are out there who are equally frustrated when um, an officer really abuses the badge and steals the honor and steals their honor.
0: Last question for all of you: uh, and This interesting concept that came up during the course of this year, and that's body cameras. And so, I don't know uh, if you got a chance to talk about that uh, in your panel discussion. But uh, I just want to bring this up as an example because you know, the, I think the squad car camera has been a tool, uh, you know, for arrests, and, and it's been a tool for uh, you know kind of monitoring, you know, the way things are done and, and also for, I guess, for evidence as well, but uh, body cameras. And, and I bring that up because we see these cell phone videos and a lot of I, my fear, I guess I'm a little uh, fearful of that because you get a perspective that doesn't come with the conscience. It comes with the camera angle. It comes without an entire context. I'm not saying don't use it, but my fear with it is that when it, it comes under review, when people look at video evidence, They may not get the entire picture because it comes down to this. I just want to show this really kind of funny TV example. I don't know if you guys watched Malcolm in the Middle or did years ago, but uh, it was a husband and wife and a family, and she she was a you know pretty uh, pretty authoritative wife. She's very assertive, and and uh, you know the husband would you know definitely uh, would uh, cater to her demands. And this one time they were at odds because she got a a, a wreck ticket. She got in a car accident and got the ticket, and so she was just adamant she didn't do anything wrong, and so she got the uh, the 7-Eleven camera. To, to give her the tape, and it shows her you know, uh, pulling out and then like, running into a car. But, and so she's like, oh my God, I actually did this. I did this horrible thing. I got in this accident. It's all my fault. And uh, what it didn't show was that the car that she got into the wreck with actually ran a green light, turned left right into her. So it wasn't her fault. But you look, I mean, and I bring that up because you look at this, you're like, yeah, she's totally on her, you know, because of this limited camera angle. And you're missing this other shot that clearly shows the other driver in violation of the law that causes the accident. So comment on that. Uh, What do you guys think about that?
1: I've, I've actually done a lot of work on body cameras uh, nationally and here in, in Illinois. So I, I think you've you know the word that you said at the beginning of of our interview perception is very important. And I'm afraid that the this is what I'm afraid of. The perception of the public is that by employing body cameras, that's going to solve all of the undercurrent of problems. And the fact of the matter is, um, you know body cameras are a useful tool just like many other useful tools that that law enforcement uh, officers carry for a myriad of reasons but they are not a panacea for either ensuring officer conduct is appropriate or for allowing management to more easily manage their workforce and so I think my fear is Well-founded, because every time there's an incident where there's not uh, body cameras present, um, that is the rallying cry by the media, by uh, community groups, by protesters, as if body cameras were going to be the end-all, be-all solution to these problems. And and they're not. And you rightly point out a camera only picks up a very limited uh, field of view, which can be extremely helpful, by the way, but is still just a limited point of view. And many of them, the way they're mounted, don't track where the off what the officer sees so for instance if uh, if it's not mounted on the officer's head and doesn't follow the officer's head movements and is mounted to the center of their their center mass of their body, an officer could see something and have his head turned to the left and be reacting to that. the camera only picks up what's directly in front of the officer's chest. so that's just an a, an example of the things that can happen. Um, but I think the overall the broader concern, at least from my standpoint is. Um, that that these are going to be seen as some kind of a magic bullet, pardon the pun. And I'm afraid people will be very disappointed if that's their expectation. Professor Mears, I want to give you a quick opportunity to comment on that. You look like you wanted to say something.
3: Well, I guess I wanted to shift the conversation about body cameras. Um, So I agree with everything that Sean just said. Um, I'm sure that Craig... They're my friends. I know. I could be calling him Director Smoot and Professor Fetterman, but <laughs> it's just awkward. too hard <laughs> to remember. Uh, Craig could say some things about police accountability. If you think about the recent incident with Mr. Dubose, where the police officer lied, and we know that he lied about what happened because <laughs> the camera makes clear that his account that he offered is just not true. I mean, so there you go. I, mean, I think that's one of the reasons why people, you know, want to look to cameras, but. You know, cameras can do something else for us, which has nothing to do with evidence and doesn't have as much to do with accountability, although it is accountability indirectly, and that is provide really important information for after action review. So, police are not going to get better at this at the everyday stop unless there is some kind of teaching mechanism that we use for teachers in very good schools. My children go to very fancy private schools, and one of the things that these schools do is they take a day every week where the teachers will sit down and they'll talk about the the kids and they talk about teaching and they're constantly reviewing their approaches to the classroom. I was just at the Chicago Police Department that last week and the trainers there said we'd like to do after action reviews of police stops where we take footage, we sit down and a group of us say, what was good about this stop? What was not so good about this stop? What can we do to improve this stop? Now, that, that kind of approach is increasingly not enough, increasingly common for the very serious incidents such as when someone loses their life. But we can do that for everyday policing, too. And body cameras that are constantly recording these interactions between police and the public can be incredibly useful tools and also might make um, police officers less worried about the use of this kind of footage because it's not evidence for wrongful behavior, but actually critical data to help you do
1: your job better. If I could just follow up on that real quick. absolutely. I, I agree uh, with what Tracy's saying. I think that what what really needs to happen is if body cameras are uh, a body camera program is employed by an agency, they should create, and we talk about this in the task force report, they should create a Sentinel event review, a non-blaming roundtable event where everyone who's involved in the incident, whether it's a traffic stop or something uh, more serious, can sit down, look at the tape, and critically, but helpfully, and openly, most importantly, openly, without fear of being disciplined, without fear of being, you know, some other ramifications. Uh, and this is done in medicine all the time, by the way, and in the transportation industry. I, I think that's really the most effective use of this stuff in an after-action standpoint. The last thing I want to say about cameras, and, I, and then I'll be quiet, is um, a benefit a very, very uh, significant benefit, as we're seeing from research that's coming in now, is that where body cameras are employed, there's significant reductions in officers' need to use force, in complaints against officers. Oh, interesting. A- and in arrests in many cases. So, um, you know what I think we're seeing is a phenomenon that is as the phrase goes, everyone behaves better when they're when there's a camera <laughs> involved. And and so I think that's that's a real despite my fear that people will have unrealistic expectations for what these will do. Those are real results that we're seeing in places around the United States and in Europe where they have uh, employed cameras and studied their impact.
0: Well, we've definitely reached the end of our time uh, for today, but, uh, and I'm sorry, Craig, uh, I'm sorry, Professor Futterman, um, but I want to thank all of you for coming by and talking about this. I could talk about this all day, you know, with, all, with everything that's been going on in the news, but I did want to offer one more opportunity if our, if our listeners had some questions, wanted to follow up with you, and based on what they heard today, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, Professor Beers? can we start with you?
3: The best way to get in contact with me is via email. My email address is my first name, Tracy. Dot, my last name, Mears, M E A R E S, at yale.edu. Professor
2: Futterman. Same with me. The best way to reach me is at my work at uh, the Law School, University of Chicago, and my email is Futterman, my last name, at Frank, U T T E R M A N, at uchicago.edu.
1: Director Smoot. Same goes for me. Uh, my email address is S S M O O T at P is in Paul, B is in Boy, P is in Paul, A is in Apple.org.
0: This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Colletti. Until next time, thank you for listening.